On this episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Danielle Sato. She will be teaching us about the history of Wakamiya Inari Shrine in Waipahu, Hawaii. The shrine is a Shinto shrine dedicated to the Kami Inari. Throughout its history, spanning over 100 years, it has played many roles in the Shinto and Japanese American community. Thank you so much for being our guest today on the program, Ms. Sato. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Ms. Walsh. It's great to be here. So my first question is, could you tell us a little bit about the history of the Inari Shrine? So I just want to say thank you to Ms. Gail Okawa and the rest of the Wakamiya Inari Shrine Committee. Uh, their research really helped me to understand more about what happened uh, to the shrine, but it started in 1914. Uh, the shrine was originally a living place of worship in the Akizaki family home. They were a Japanese family living in Honolulu. And um, in 1918, it was the shrine was moved further inland into Honolulu in a place called Mo'ili'ili. Uh, Reverend Yoshio Akizaki was the head priest of the shrine, and his son Takeo Akizaki who also completed his studies in Japan to become a priest, uh, were the main priests of the shrine. During World War II, both father and son were interned. So I don't know if you're familiar with that history, but um, Reverend Yoshio Okizaki was interned in Hawaii, and his son was sent initially to the continental United States with hundreds of Issei, or first-generation Japanese, and... Essentially, they found out he was actually a Japanese um, American. He was born in America, so he was Nisei. So he was sent back to Hawaii and interned in the Hono Uli Uli internment camp on Oahu. Uh, after World War II, Mr. Takizaki, or Reverend Takizaki, returned and he led the shrine. And it became a place of really strong community for 60 years. They had a bowling league. They participated in a lot of social events. It was a really... Uh, prominent part of the community. But in February of 1979, the land was sold and the shrine was under threat to be demolished. Uh, so it started, here's the next part, but Michael Malloy, he was one day driving along the main road of Mo'ili'ili and he noticed that Wakamiya Inari Shrine looked abandoned. There was no greenery, the fox statues at the front of the shrine looked had been stolen. And after seeing the shrine state, uh, my, one of Michael's colleagues suggested he speak to Nancy Bannock. She was a journalist, um, pop, very famous journalist for the Sunset Magazine here in Hawaii. Uh, she was active in conservation work at that time. And so Michael called Miss Bannock and they came to talk. He, he came to her talk in a theater in Honolulu. And after the talk, he explained the situation about the shrine and he asked anyone for volunteers. And it just so happened that at, that, at the end of the night, a few people came and decided to help him. Uh, these people were Colonel Chuck Kiever, his wife Bev Kiever, Gail Okawa, Mitsu Stout, and Kate Hanish. Uh, shortly after this, the, this group decided to make an appointment with Mayor Frank Fossey. He was the mayor at the time, and in response to their visit, Fossey told them that their intentions were good, but the city had no money to help them. So that was unfortunate. But they weren't willing to give up. So they contacted George, the governor at the time, George Ariyoshi, and he came to the shrine to see if he could help them. When he saw the state of the shrine, he agreed to help, and he got them in contact with a very 
uh, interesting but charismatic man, Mr. Major Hideo Okada. So Hideo, Mr. Major Hideo Okada uh, had this vision. He he wanted to create kind of like a museum or like a replication of a plantation village, a historical plantation village. And they were going to call it Waipahu Cultural Garden Park. And so the vision Mr. Governor Ariyoshi had for this shrine was he wanted to include this in the cultural park. So he had, he and the uh, Mr. Hideo, they went to a lot of banks and businesses in downtown with the board, and they gave they gave presentations to the banks and businesses in downtown. And each of the boards actually provided them checks for a thousand dollars in order to help with this project, and that was quite a bit of money in 1979. So you know that was that was actually enough to help them get the shrine to where it needed to be. So a deconsecration ceremony took place um, at the shrine and was presided over by Reverend Miao of Hawaii Izumo Taishakyo. So the, basically after this, on August 1st, 1979, the shrine was loaded onto a truck and taken to Waipahu on the west side of Oahu, where it was renovated by uh, Mr. Lane Weber, who was the designer or architect of the Cultural Garden Park. And years later, they were eventually, uh, the shrine was placed on the National Register of Historic Places and on the State Register of Historic Places. So it's been a while, around for a long time. And then on June 4th, 2022, the Shrine Preservation Committee and reference, representatives of the Friends of Owaipahu Cultural Garden Park celebrated the renewal of the shrine. So it's been around for more than 100 years at this point. But... Together with this project, it, they were celebrating the 40 years of the shrine's existence in the Cultural Garden Park and how it kind of brought together all these strangers and people who didn't know each other and really created this historic kind of area where people could appreciate and learn more about the history of Hawaii. So that was actually really important and impactful to this long history of Wakamiya Inari Shrine. That's amazing seeing how this shrine was able to bring so many people together. It seems like it must have had quite the impact on the community over the years. Oh yeah, it it really did. And it really was an important um, part of the Japanese American community, I feel. So uh, the shrine is named after Inari, could you tell us a little bit more about them and their significance to Shinto? Okay, so I um, Inari Okami is kind of an interesting kami. Um, traditionally, this kami is conflated with a kami from the Kojiki or Nihonshoki. Those are two texts from Japan, and uh, Uka no Mitama is traditionally one of the um, kami that are associated with Inari, but in reality. Inari Okami was actually a foreign kami. They were brought in by the Hata clan in the 5th century. So the Hata clan were immigrant clan um, that became a noble family in Japan. And their, their clan became a line of priests for Fushimi Inari Taisha, which is a very, very, you know, those red Tori gates featured in the uh, Memoir of a Geisha. That shrine is actually the one of the premier shrines in for, for Inari Okami. And so that clan originally was the head of the priesthood at that um, historically. So 
um, Hatta clan started out worshipping Inari and eventually this spread to the Heian period and into the 16th century. So originally Inari was a kami for agriculture, for fertility, um, for abundance, but then it, this kami's influence kind of spread to um, the protection of blacksmiths and warriors, uh, seafaring of all things and protection from fires and a lot of other areas that were kind of um, unexpected. So um, this was due to the fact that a lot of different uh, classes were worshiping, started worshiping Inari and that was um, like the fishermen, farmers, they had actors, women, uh, merchants, and even warlords were actually um, started worshiping Inari and they became a very popular kami to um, pray to. So I just wanted to mention that um, historically, Inari Okami was worshipped in the form of three different kami. It's he's this kami is not necessarily just one entity, but traditionally, it used to be um, three. So um, eventually, during the Kamakura period, that that expanded to five expanded to five kami, and traditionally, the three main kami who are enshrined as Inari Okami are Uka no Mitama. Sadahiko no Okami and Oomiya no Me no Okami. So there are many other groupings of kami though that exist to that designate um, Inari Okami, but those are the traditional three that are usually enshrined. Um, it should be noted that not all shrines have three or five designated kami. Some of them are just one, just one um, individual kami designated as Inari Okami. So that also is a um, common interpretation as well. I just wanted to also mention, uh, I really admire um, scholar Karen Ace Myers, and she wrote a lot of research on the um, Inari Okami and the history of worship in Japan. And so I just wanted to quote something from her um, work. But there's a lot of diverse interpretations and beliefs centered around Inari Okami and Shinto. Uh, for those who practice Inari worship, Inari is a kami as the believer's connection to Inari Okami varies by person. So basically that means no one, no one person's view and connection to Inari Okami is the same. So everyone who worships Inari Okami has a different interpretation about the mythology, about what kind of kami this person um, this deity is, uh gender even and personality varies by believer. And that's what we find really unique about this kami is that there's a lot of personalization. So um, one of the things she noted in her research was that these believers often felt a strong sense of intimacy towards this kami. And they they referred to this as shitashisa, which is basically um, kind of like connection or close um, kind of a familiarity. So this, I can attest to this because there is a Inari Okami enshrined at my home shrine and um, amongst other kami and I felt a close connection to this uh, kami-sama alongside the others enshrined at my home shrine. There's a sense of intimacy or closeness related to this kami. So that's what makes Inari Okami a very popular kami to um, be worshipped. Thank you for sharing that. So a Shinto shrine or Jinja is said to host the kami. When does it become a Jinja and how do they welcome the Kami in? So that's a great question. Um, I really had to um, think about that and to consult. I really want to, first of all, 
thank uh, Reverend Olivia Burncastle. She's an assistant priestess at Konkokyo Yokosuka Shrine in Japan. So she helped me answer this one because um, she's um, ordained. But so basically a long time ago, ancient Japanese people, we believe that kami existed everywhere. Uh, instead of utilizing a set location, we called upon nature or we set our um, intention to call upon nature as a way to connect with kami. And the establishment of the Jinja is a more common concept. It was brought in with the introduction to Buddhism uh, in Japan. And one of the defining features that makes Jinja a place uh, is that there is a presence of to, presence of kami. And the way we define a presence of kami in a Jinja is through the presence of a Goshintai, which is the divine body of Kamisama. So um, what defines a Goshintai is essentially, they can be one of two things. Uh, they are they can be a natural formation, like a river, tree, mountain, waterfall, ocean. So something from the earth. Or it can be a physical object, such as a mirror, sword, jewel, or small stone. So an example of a Jinja that I would like to bring up is that um, in, in Nara, there is a mountain called Mount Omiwa. And there is a shrine attached to that mountain called Omiwa Taisha. And it's one of the oldest shrines in Japan. And it's said that that shrine, um, the Goshintai for Omiwa Taisha, is the mountain itself. The mountain, uh, Mount Omiwa, is their Goshintai. And another example for a Goshintai as a regular uh, physical object would be Ise Jingu. So uh, Ise Jingu enshrines the Yata no Kagami, which is the sacred mirror. And that's their Goshintai. So uh, one way Jinja welcome Kami is by essentially, we, they keep it clean. We have to really, um, as someone who volunteers, it's really important to keep a shrine clean. Um, Kami really appreciate purity and pure spaces. So to try, shrine staff, especially the um, ordained priests and priestesses and their helpers really have to keep that area pure, pure and uh, clean. But another way we also welcome kami is through food offerings or shinsen. And that's another way um, to celebrate and appreciate with kami. So by offering food and um, conducting ceremony, that is another way to um, appreciate and to welcome kami. That's really cool. So uh, I know you've already gone over a lot of the that, but what are some of the uh, the ways that the shrine plays a role in the Shinto faith? Oh, so um, Jinja, they are a real focal point of Shinto faith. Um, they're the places where we go to pray to Kami, and we always sometimes pick up Omomori or Ofuda, uh, although in Shinto, we believe kami are everywhere. So just to really emphasize, you don't have to be at a shrine to pray to them, but people find going to Jinja a vital part of the tradition of connecting with kami. So I had to consult with Reverend Bergcastle again, but um, because I've never actually, um, I don't, I'm not super familiar with the way uh, in Japan the Jinja works, but so she explained to me that um, Jinja in Japan are viewed as a place where the kami just live and exist. So the analogy she used was the uh, a library. So when a person goes to a library, they go specifically to check out or borrow books and other relevant materials. 
On that same note, Jinja are a place for people to go to connect with Kami and ask for blessings. So Kami-sama offers um, um, a, a strong connection there. For major shrines such as Izumo Oyashiro, Isie Jingo, um, in Fushimi Inari Taisha, these Jinja are a source of history and cultural pride for those Japanese individuals who live in the cities and towns nearby. Uh, smaller neighborhood shrines are also very important to the community especially the neighborhood community where people go to pray and make wishes. In Reverend Brincastle's words, smaller local jinja become a place of community for such areas like neighborhood or small town where it's good for the locals to connect and get along. Harmony is a very important part of Japanese culture. Uh, it's in considered important to show respect to Kamisama for watching over and protecting the community. While not everyone may do this, it's still considered an important value Often there's a community association that supports and helps take care of the shrine. So that's something um, that also occurs overseas. Finally, there are also famous Jinja that are known that people just go to for certain blessings. So they go for a specific purpose, like safe birth or educate or success in education. So those are some of the reasons why um, how Jinja plays a, a focal point in for communities in Japan. But for communities outside of Japan, like in Hawaii, uh, jinja are centers for spiritual and cultural connection. So the kanushi or shinshoku, they're the ordained priests or priestesses that help staff these shrines overseas, but they play a real strong role in um, their roles as leaders in the community as well as spiritual guides for people. I feel that this is because um, as a member of the Japanese diaspora, I feel like even after World War II, it's been kind of difficult for Nikkei or Japanese diaspora to find a place to really connect with our culture. And for that reason, I feel that Jinja have really served the purpose to not only connect Japanese people with our culture, but to spread and also show appreciation and teach others about Japanese culture for the community at large. So so just in general, we, we really want to share our culture as well. And just as an example, I am in Ojiku, Ujiko, or parishioner for Hawaii Kotohira Jinsha, Hawaii Dezaifuten Mango on Oahu. And I have been learning very slowly, and it's kind of difficult, about uh, kimono dressing. So one of the events I volunteered at was for Shishigo-san at my home shrine. And um, it's very interesting how kimono is prepared and how everyone is dressed. And it's very, it's very complex. <laughs> and... That was something I wouldn't have learned if I hadn't volunteered at this shrine. It's something that I feel is very important for um, for my connection to my culture. And I just thought it was really interesting that I had that access to that. Because I know a lot some Japanese Americans don't have that access. They could go online or anything like that. But it's one thing to learn about it online, but one thing to actually learn about it in person. So I just feel like that's also an important thing. But to sum it up, um, Jap in Japan, Jinja are more commonly viewed as a space to go to to connect with Kami and a place to gather and strengthen the bonds of those in communities. While outside of Japan, it's a stronger emphasis on Jinja as both a cultural and religious establishment. So that's the, how those two both are the same, but also slightly different. That's really cool. And it's incredible that so many people came together to help with saving the shrine and 
preserving it, especially since, you know, it's been around for over a hundred years, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it, it's really something very amazing. I feel like that Wakamiya Inari Shrine has this uncanny ability to really bring people together. And it's just, even after it was deconsecrated, there's a real strong sense of appreciation and love for Kamisama for that shrine. I have a real quick story. Uh, so one of the volunteers, uh, Mr. Stephen Pang, told us the story while at, at a talk for the shrine. And he said that after the shrine was deconsecrated, the wake mitama or the um, the spirit or of the kamisama was given to uh, the reverend's nephew, the old reverend's nephew. And he kept the wake mitama in his home. And for years, people would visit his home just to pray to wake mitama. And that was really interesting to me because even though there wasn't actually a shrine to host it, people still felt that strong connection to that 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 kamisama, and they would come and they would pray and they would show respect, even until up until that wakemitama was given to Izumo Taishakyo. So I was like, I was very really moved by that story because I feel like that really, even even generations later, people were still trying to pray and feel connection to Kamisama, um, and especially to walk up that shrine in particular. So I just thought I'd share that. Absolutely. That's a beautiful story. And it's interesting to hear how prayer is used in different faiths and what prayer means to everyone. Yeah, I, I really think that's what I really like about just in general religion it really elevates humanity, I feel, in that we learn to believe in something greater than ourselves. Absolutely. So what role does prayer play in the Shinto faith? I know it can be very personal and might vary person to person. Oh, yeah, it, it really does. Um, I feel like it does vary from person to person. Um, from an institutional perspective, there are two types of prayer. Um, one type of prayer is called norito, and I'm sure it's very, that one you've probably have heard of. Uh, they're the most common um, types of prayer that are talked about, but these are chanting prayers, and essentially they were developed out of the concept, the Japanese concept of kotodama, which essentially means that um, words hold power. And when when kotodama is utilized, if you speak to Kamisama with a sincere heart, essentially things will... Um, it's it's the purest form of communication, not only to Kamisama, but from human to human as well. Um, in Reverend Burkastel's words, citing her again, uh, reciting these words sincerely to Kamisama will help us connect to them. So to recite these words with sincerity from the bottom of your heart means to purify your heart and spirit. So it's not just um, connecting just with Kamisama, but it also purifies and it's a very purif purifying effect on the human soul and, and on the human spirit. So Norito was actually very important because they were utilized traditionally to um, connect with Kamisama in that sense. But the other form of prayer I wanted to talk about was called, it's referred to as Matsuri Goto or Saishi. And this is translated as main prayer. And as I just want to explain briefly that this is something that is traditionally done by the head priest or priestess of a shrine. It's not con conducted by lay people. So 
Uh, the head officiant of the shrine is often the person who conducts this uh, prayer during ceremony. And as Reverend Burkastle explains to me, uh, it's something that she that lay people need training or even priests and priestesses need specialized training in seminary school in order to conduct this prayer properly. So um, this is one of the hardest skills a Shinto priest or priestess has to master as a um as a leader of the Shinto community. And essentially this is a they write a prayer directly to Kamisama in very poetic and uh reverential Japanese and they recite it during a ceremony and they convey not only um their the names um names and the identities of the people who are sponsoring the ceremony and of the priest or priestess themselves but they also write in the prayer about the request of the worshiper and also what they are hoping to get out of the ceremony or what they're hoping to see and gratitude for Kamisama as well. Uh, it's really the heart, heart of the, this kind of um, ceremony itself. So I just want to emphasize that from the standpoint of someone new to Shinto, I know that Norito and Saishi can kind of sound very formal and daunting, but I just want to say that little prayers, like you mentioned earlier, that we speak we speak to Kamisama from our hearts, those sincere prayers are just as important as Norito and Saishi, and they help us to connect with Kamisama. So I feel like don't feel daunted if you don't know Norito by heart, or if you don't, if you're still new to Shinto and you don't know how to pray, just speak sincerely, and that is really what connects you to Kamisama. That's beautiful. Do you have any prayers you'd like to share on the show? I had to really think about this one because I'm still learning Norito and um, I really had to consult because I really wasn't sure what prayer I should utilize. But Reverend Burkastle suggested I use something very simple. And so I'm going to say a brief prayer in English. Um, it's sincere prayer, a little something personal. Uh, so first off, we're going to do a quick praying etiquette that must be followed. So we we tend to do this at shrines typically, but there's a, I, I'm I don't know if you've seen it before, but there it's a series of bows and claps. So we call this nire ni hakusho nire, which is um, essentially uh, two bows, two claps, one bow. And uh, this means two to one. So we will greet Kamisama by bowing twice before the prayer. And we'll clap twice and then pray and then bow again. So I'm just gonna quickly um show do do this. So uh are you ready? Okay, sure. So since we're kind of in a seated position, we'll just kind of rel um just center ourselves, but um one, two, now. Kamisama, thank you for taking care of both Ms. Sarah Walsh and myself and our future listeners. Thank you for allowing us to meet and have a conversation together on this podcast. Please continue to keep everyone safe during this time. Please watch over us and help us to do great good in this world with the sincerest of hearts. Onegaishimasu. And then one more bow. And that's it. Thank you so much. That yeah, was no beautiful. Problem. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And 
I know it was a lot of information, but um, I hope that this will be something that people can connect with and learn about. So I hope so too. And it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can visit the Wakamiya Inari Shrine at the Waipahu Cultural Garden in Waipahu, Hawaii. I found the Historic Hawaii Foundation and Asian Reflections on the American Landscape, Identifying and Interpreting Asian Heritage by the National Park Service, helpful when doing research for this episode.